the Beatles had this charm, John, Paul and George, and probably then Stuart and Pete had this charm when things weren't going well, which in their world wasn't very often because mostly it was an upward trajectory, but nonetheless, sometimes you know, they would have a bad night or the gig would, you know, didn't work properly or the amps broke or whatever. I say, where are we going, fellas? And they go, to the top, Johnny. And I say, where's that, fellas? And they say, to the toppermost of the poppermost. And I say, right. And we'd all sort of cheer up. Now then, boys, where are we going? To the top, Bry. Where's that? To the toppermost of the poppermost. Welcome to Side B, July of 1963. If you listen to Side A, you found out that, well, this is the first time that the Rolling Stones would make an appearance on the British charts. Yeah, that was a pretty momentous occasion, I would say. All right, I am Ed Chen from When They Was Fab and, well, this show. (laughs) Uh, I'm Kid O'Toole of of, uh, Talk More Talk, a solo Beatles video cast, and and this show. And I'm Martin Quibell from Pods Like Us and When They Was Fab. And this show. And this show. Well, yeah, of course, because I'm here. Well, (laughs) sort of. (laughs) No, no, no. All right. Sometimes. (laughs) When I say anything. Shut well, up, Martin. <laughs> you will have to talk more on Fab, where you're carrying half the weight. We don't have Kit to take up a full thirty-four <laughs> percent. You both do around, I don't don't know, forty percent each on here, and when I do the other twenty, maybe. <laughs> Someone needs to be telling the jokes. We've been through the British charts. For me, to you is kind of dropping down, but the Beatles are busy at work coming up with one of the songs that's going to break them worldwide. Yep. Okay, so we move on to the American charts for July of 1963. Again, there's not a whole lot of new stuff, but Kit wanted to talk a little bit about some of the themes just briefly here because even the themes are kind of recycled from previous shows. They're a continuation of what we've seen. Of course, on the American charts, not seeing evidence of the British invasion yet. We're seeing a continuing folk influence. The folk revival is uh, still going on, particularly in the form of the Hootenanny. There's a show that's on called Hootenanny, but there's also a couple of songs on uh, that we're going to encounter that refer to Hootenanny, which was basically sort of a jam session, I guess you could say, that folk singers would have. And this was popular in college campuses, even um, parties. And it would be kind of an informal gathering where folk musicians would sit around and jam and maybe in front of audiences, maybe not. And as I said, there was even a television show that was popular around this time called Hootenanny. So we're going to see the continuing influence of this folk revival, but it's still not the protest, you know, the heavy protest kind of folk that we'll see later on. So we'll see that. Hootenanny is kind of the intersection between Bob Dylan and the Flat and Scruggs kind of thing. It's maybe not bluegrass. It's still a little bit on the poppier side of folk, you know, is probably the way to, to put it. Although Joan Baez, Pete Seeger, you know, they were all active in this Hootenanny scene. Also, we're going to see a lot of country crossover records 
Now, a lot of them are the Nashville sound that we've been talking about in previous episodes that we will see over and over. You know, Chet Atkins produce a lot of the Patsy Cline kind of sound, more country pop, that smooth sound. So we'll definitely be hearing some of those records, but we will also be hearing a couple of more straightforward country records. So we're going to hear that, and we are going to be hearing that continuing kind of classic pop influence. Tony Bennett, Perry Como, Wayne Newton. We're going to hear a little bit of that. We're going to be hearing Steve and Edie. Acts like that are still popular on the American charts. So it's interesting that while we will see some records that you might expect soul, uh, we'll see a little Motown, but there are these other kinds of records, the, the folk, the pop, and country that we're going to see. But some of these records in just a year, some of these sounds are going to be a bit endangered. (laughs) So let's put it that way. So we start with the week of July 6th. At number 54, a song called Six Days on the Road by Dave Dudley. This is kind of the predecessor of all the truck driving songs, you know, Convoy, the sort of thing that we would see behind Burt Reynolds in the 70s. Exactly. This was part of a popular truck driving theme uh, craze. And what I found interesting about this, too, is that, you know, the Beatles are often accused of writing drug songs and corrupting young people's minds. Well, guess what? This has a drug reference and caused some controversy at the time, but not as much as you would think. Dave Dudley was an artist that kind of specialized in this truck driving theme. This was a signature song, Six Days on the Road. He also wrote Truck Driving Son of a Gun and Me and My Old CB. I knew, <laughs> I'm like, there had to be a CB reference somewhere. That was, that was in the 70s. So it had to be... And there's a line in this song, he's talking about, you know, just sort of the trials and, and the travails of a, of a truck driver. And at one point he sings, I'm taking little white pills and my eyes are open wide. So someone shipped him some prelude in, huh? Yeah, pr- pretty much. I mean, it was kind of like that. I mean, it was basically stimulants that drivers would take to keep going on the road. And a number of artists have covered this uh, song. George Thorogood and the Destroyers, Steve Earle, Flying Burrito Brothers, Sawyer Brown, number of artists. But some of them apparently were not comfortable with that lyric and would change it to refer to looking at white lines on the road. <laughs> The little white lines in my eyes be open wide. Didn't feel comfortable talking about pills. So there are drug references in all different kinds of, <laughs> of songs. But yeah, this is the predecessor to the truck driving songs that you would find quite a bit in the 70s. But this gentleman definitely had a long career in this genre. I got my diesel wound up and she's a running like I never before. There's a speed zone ahead with all right. I don't see a cop in sight. Six days on the road and I'm gonna make it home tonight. I got me ten forward gears on a Georgia overdrive. I'm taking little white pills in my eyes, I open wide. I just passed a Jimmy in a wine. I've been a past on everything in sight. Six days on the road and I'm gonna make it home tonight. I think the one I remember the most is the one from the Flying Burrito Brothers. Mm-hmm. Really? Okay. I got ten forward gears in a George Bull 
As we go through these songs, it's not just drugs. It surprises me how many less than subtle sex references are in the lyrics of a lot of these songs. People tend to say, oh, oh, by the time the Beatles got around, they were pushing these sex references. You know, there's references to making love or doing things or, you know, this, that, and the other. Just throughout all of these songs, it's like, okay, they didn't invent it in 1964. Exactly. You know, when I listened to this and I was like, whoa, you know, popping pills right in the country song. Yet the Beatles were criticized for all these supposed drug references and not just the Beatles, of course, other artists in in the 60s. And yet here's a country artist talking very openly about it. Okay, at number 70, I Who Have Nothing by Benny King. I love you. His vocal on this is just great. I love his vocal on this. It's, you know, it's so smooth. Absolutely. I mean, Benny King, what can you say? Just an amazing singer. I'm glad we're talking about this because, of course, you know, he's known today mainly for Stand By Me. Great song, but I'm glad to talk about this because you really get to appreciate and dig into his other songs because he's such a great vocalist uh, and should be known for more than just Stand By Me. This is a song that actually started life as an Italian song. It was called One of Many. That's the English translation. And this is the first version in English. The new lyrics were written by Lieber and Stoller. Cool. The title is a translation of a line in the original Italian version. But otherwise, the rest of the lyrics were written anew by Weber and Stoller. But the record used the same arrangement from the Italian version. And yeah, it's gorgeous. And Benny King just sings it with such passion. Shirley Bassey later recorded a version of this with producer George Martin and uh, recorded it later, uh, September 1963. And as you mentioned, well, we'll we'll get to that in just a few. I agree, Ed. His vocals are just stunning. This is a song in his prime I would have liked to have seen Paul cover. I think he could have done a real good job with this in the 90s, let's say. I'm going to put in another tenuous Beatles connection here. You ready? All right, ready. Okay. Ben did a superb, I think, great album in the 70s where he was backed up with the uh, average white band who featured Hamish Stewart, who was in Paul McCartney's band in 89 for about five years. Yes, Oh, wow. I have to check that out. I love the average white band. So them with B- B- Benny King. Oh. Yep. They wrote all the songs and they just got Benny to sing them. It's a great album. It's a really good album, but very little known. Thank you for telling me. Oh, sign me up. <laughs> we cannot forget Hamish is one of the all-stars right now. Yes. If you get to see Ringo on this tour, Hamish is out there with them. Oh, I just seen them. I did get to see Ringo on this current tour, but if you want to hear about that, go listen to Fab because, well, we go into that a little bit. It's the very first show with 
Martin, as a matter of fact. And that album's called Benny and Us, by the way. Okay, at number 74, Dee Dee Sharp with Rock Me in the Cradle of Love. It used to be a much better known song. I mean, I remember listening to this on the radio on the oldie station when I was growing up. This was a Cameo Parkway record. Dee Dee Sharp had the terrific voice. It's a shame that she didn't have a bigger career than she had. Boy, this is straight out of the church. I mean, it really is this version. Very gospel-oriented with the prominent organ, the vocal arrangement. I mean, that call and response with the backing singers. And as I said... Dee Dee's vocal styling, I mean, that is straight out of gospel. When we hear the Beatles talking about how they loved the sound of the black singers, you look at this and you look at Benny King and there's no doubt this is what they were talking about. Absolutely. I mean, it was records like this they really drew from. Paul actually talks about this in, in his book, how much they drew from African American records and all. And yeah, this is a prime example of what they were listening to. The song of hers that you might still hear is Mashed Potato Time. It's more of a novelty song than this. This is the better record, but Mashed Potato Time has managed to have a life beyond uh, the charts and beyond the eras. It's the children's songs that seem to have the longest life. She did way more than that. Check out her other stuff. It's uh, She was a great singer. And it should be noted that she was engaged to... Cassius Clay for a period of time, including February 64, when the Beatles would encounter Cassius. I'm a little bit surprised that she didn't show up in one of Paul's photos that's in the book. Paul liked to take pictures of the ladies, and (laughs) she would have been around. Yeah, that's true. But if you go and you look on the uh, internet, there's just uh, an amazing photo of Ronnie Spector. It's Ronnie Spector, it's Dee Dee Sharp. It's Dionne Warwick, it's Stevie Wonder, and it's Cassius Muhammad Ali backstage at the Apollo right about this time in 1963. It's an amazing photo. My gosh. How many legends can you fit in one photo? (laughs) Wow. At number 75, be careful of stones that you throw. Dion, it's okay uh, to, to use Kit's words. It was first recorded by Hank Williams. And it was in the tradition of a persona that uh, Hank Williams recorded under called Luke the Drifter. He recorded a, a series of albums under that name. And the Luke the Drifter songs were more moralizing songs. There was always a lesson at the end of the song. And with this song, it's the heroic act of a, a woman who is killed while saving a child from a passing car the same child whose mother had previously ostracized her. It's a little heavy-handed, but those are the kind of songs that Hank Williams did under that name. So we have Hank Williams to blame for Garth Brooks and Chris Gaines, huh? Yeah, kind of. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, dear, how many apologies there. I love Hank Williams. He didn't write the song. Let me clarify that. It was written by Bonnie Dodd, who was a steel guitar player. And Dion did a decent job with the song, but I think it would work better with Hank Williams' voice, you know, with a more traditional country voice. But I don't know. I just think this works better as a traditional country kind of song. But I've heard better from Hank Williams, too. <laughs> Gossip is cheap and it's low. But unless you've made 
seeds of distrust it will sow. But unless you've made no mistakes in your life, be careful of stones that you throw. All right, at number 78, Candy Girl by The Four Seasons. I mean, it's a song that everybody knows. It, it is a classic, and Frankie Valli is still touring the country. He just played San Antonio not too long ago. Yeah, keeps on going. Beatle-wise, this appeared on the Beatles versus The Four Seasons album. You will find this credited as a Beatles song in some discographies. Why? Oh, because it's on the Four Seasons side of that record. It is a good song. I mean, you know, nothing else to say about that. It shows off Frankie Valli's voice really well. Yeah, it's fun. It's a fun song. Although the B-side, which we'll be getting to in a little bit, I like better. (laughs) At number 80, Leslie Gore's follow-up to It's My Party, Judy's Turn to Cry. Apparently, Leslie Gore was not fond of this song. You know, we talked about the Stones not being happy with Come On. Leslie Gore was not happy with Judy's Turn to Cry, although it's in the charts and it was a hit for her. Once again, produced by Quincy Jones. In my opinion, you can really tell Quincy Jones' fingerprints are on this with the percussion and the strings and, and just that kind of crystal clear production. And it is a sequel to It's My Party. The singer was in tears because her boyfriend Johnny left the party with her best friend Judy. And here, the singer kisses another boy at another party in order to make Johnny jealous. Johnny hits the other boy and returns to her. And so now it's Judy's turn to cry. (laughs) Because Johnny's come back to me. (laughs) That's right. So... Yep. So, you know, so it's it's revenge. Yeah, I guess uh, Leslie Gore wasn't super excited about this song, but it was another hit. And Leslie Gore had such a great voice. She had such a crisp, clear kind of sound. So she does it very well. All right. At number 85, Brenda Lee with My Whole World is Falling Down. Now, is it just me or is this the tune of London Bridge is Falling Down? You are absolutely correct. It was to that tune. So... Very perceptive. <laughs> Brenda Lee is, is another one with a great voice, but the song is like, uh, really? Yeah, it's a little odd that it was set to that tune, but Brenda Lee, what a voice. She was so young, but she sounded so much older than her age, but what a powerful voice she had. I mean, she could sing the alphabet and make it sound great. Okay, at number 81, Willpower by the Cookies. Let me tell you nice girls don't kiss on their first day. No, I ought to make you win. No, what you do to my willpower. This is a powerful record. Although it is so of its time, the lyrics are kind of funny. It is just so 
typical of the pre-sexual revolution. So, you know, in just a few short years, Goffin and King would write, you make me feel like a natural woman. It'd be a very different kind of song, whereas this one is just, let me tell you, nice girls don't kiss on their first date. Well, it's kind of the opposite of what I was just saying. Some people were happy making, if not blatant, at least obvious sexual references. Here, not so much. Yeah, the internal struggle that this woman is going through. It's very interesting. All right, at number 94, a song that Kit listed, and she will have to tell us why she has this on here. Okay. Spring by Birdlegs and Pauline and their versatility birds. So it's Birdlegs, Pauline, and their versatility birds. That's three separate acts. Or This really doesn't have a Beatles connection. To show the world how strong I love all the stars in heaven above What people say won't be the thing Cause in our hearts we'll know it's spring Sit back, folks. This is a weird story. You, you won't believe this. Particularly you Midwesterners out there who are listening. Birdlegs and Pauline were a couple that Sidney Birdlegs Banks and his wife Pauline Shivers Banks was he born with that name? Birdlegs must be some nickname. I do not know how he got that nickname. He was born in Chicago, she Memphis, but they married and ended up living in Rockford, Illinois. Some of you out there may know that's where Cheap Trick, members of Cheap Trick are from. And so they formed a duo, performing duo, and they were backed by brothers Mac and Floyd Murphy, and they were called the Versatility Birds. Ooh, Mac, Mac Guitar Murphy. Exactly. And so they wanted to record some material, so they ended up going to Sauk City, Wisconsin. Now, it turns out there was a record label in the early 60s called Kuka Records, C-U-C-A, And a number of African-American artists would go out there because you could record stuff fairly inexpensively in this little town in Wisconsin. I did not know this until, you know, researching this. And so they went out and recorded a single called Spring, okay? And it got some local notice enough that VJ, okay, there's a slight Beatles connection. Okay. Okay, VJ ended up releasing the single, and it got attention, and it made the charts. So then they were going to record an album for VJ, and for some reason, the recordings were never released. I don't know why. But they ended up recording some stuff for the KUKA label, and that album was released and didn't go anywhere. That album's pretty rare if you can get the original pressing of that. The couple split up. Birdlegs never recorded again. (laughs) Pauline tried to start a recording career in Chicago, but she kind of sounded like Laverne Baker. She had a little bit of that sound to her, but never really went anywhere. Their backing group, uh, Mac and Floyd Murphy, went on to work with the Blues Brothers. So it was just this one-shot group that had this Midwest connection And the song itself has a little bit of a swamp pop beat to it. It's a very interesting song. And as I said, it got released on VJ. They had their brief moment and then they faded. But it's just such a weird little record. So apparently if you can find the Birdlegs and Pauline album, 
it's worth a little something. Not as much as, say, a Butcher cover, <laughs> but it's worth a little money because it's a very rare album. All right, so we'll go with the VJ Connection. The VJ Connection is the Slight Beatles Connection, but it's also for fellow Midwesterners out there. We're allowed to indulge every now and again. The charts mm-hmm. are so broad and wide. But I mean, it's just what a weird record to uh, make the Hot 100 in 1963. Well, there's another one which is coming up at the end of this show. Going to leave us with nothing but scratching our heads over. Yep, exactly. <laughs> at number 98, Love Me All the Way by Kim Weston. It's a fine record. I don't have much to say about it. Yeah, Kim Weston was a lesser known uh, Motown vocalist. She should have been more successful than she was. She's known these days more for It Takes Two, a duet with Marvin Gaye. And she also had a hit, although it was a fairly modest one, with Take Me In Your Arms, which the Doobie Brothers recorded a cover of in the 70s and had a hit with. She had a powerful voice, had some grit to it. But she was kind of unfortunate that she was on a label with Mary Wells and then Diana Ross and the Supremes. It Takes Two is a great vocal, but it's a little bit poppier than... Some of her other stuff. Yeah, exactly. Slight Beatles connection here. She did cover Eleanor Rigby for her album, Big Brass Four Poster. She also recorded something on that album in 1970. That's after she left Motown because she just couldn't get anywhere on Motown. You know, just as I said, the competition was just so fierce. But she was a good vocalist. And it's just a shame that, you know, she just never really caught on there. Well, as Ed into that, she had a very varied voice. It had the soft, but it also had the grit in there when, when it was needed as well. And yeah, it's almost like the artist that time forgot, and it feels almost you yeah, know, unfair. Yeah, she was in actually sense. considered one of the most versatile vocalists on the label. You know, you're absolutely right, Martin. And yeah, it's just a shame that she just never really caught on, you know, with the public. And now we reveal one of our tricks. If we can't find any other connection, we'll find a cover because everyone has covered at least one Beatles song somewhere in their career. Exactly. (laughs) Although I did have another at least tangential reference. She was one of the opening acts for Jerry and the Pacemakers for their tour of the States in 1964. Oh, did not know that. There we go. At number 99, True Love Never Runs Smooth by Gene Pitney. We've talked about Gene Pitney before. Very powerful voice. Another song which has been forgotten and probably is better left forgotten. Then beside me all the while, no matter what goes wrong. Separately we're weak, together we'll be strong. I mean, you can tell this is how David Burbacharach song in that the chord changes are a bit more sophisticated than the typical pop song of the era. But other than that, it's not one of the more memorable Gene Pitney and Bacharach David songs. It's okay. 
as I've said. <laughs> Better than the other Burt Bacharach song, which we're going to get in a yes. little bit. Oh, yes. I'll take this one. <laughs> <laughs> okay. At number 100, Tears of Joy by Chuck Jackson. Tears of Joy. A great vocalist, and both John and Paul separately would cite him as being one of their favorite vocalists. Paul had a questionnaire where he lists Chuck Jackson, and John did a thing for Tony Barrow called Lifelines, where he says his favorite singers are the Shirelles, the Miracles, Chuck Jackson, and Benny King. So (laughs) that alone justifies what we're talking about on the American charts. Hard to argue with them. I mean, I love Any Day Now. That's, of course, my favorite Chuck Jackson record. But Tears of Joy, this record is not one of my favorites of his. I think it's the arrangement that I don't love. It's just a little sloppy, but his voice rescues the song. I mean, his voice just soars. And the backing vocals are very gospel-influenced. So love the voices. It's just the arrangement that leaves a little bit to be desired he passed away in february oh, by no. the way this, this february oh, how did i miss that so i thought i'd just point that oh, out so rest, rest in, in peace, peace. Chuck. great singer all right uh we move on to the week of july 13th at number 32 i wish i were a princess by little peggy marsh we've talked about her before not one of her better songs no and what's interesting is one of the songwriters george david weiss Among the songs he co-wrote, What a Wonderful World, Can't Help Falling in Love with You, and Lullaby of Birdland. And he wrote this, too. I guess everybody is entitled to writing some clunkers along with the great ones. It's very coined. It's kind of of its time. Peggy March had such a good voice, she gave it her all. She tried. She tried. She tried. But it's just, in my view, it's, it's not a strong song. You know, it hasn't really aged that well. I wish I were a princess So beautiful to see I'd pass the greatest law in his story a lovely little law i hope you'd never break and it would make you fall in love with me i'm not sure how it made the charts but i mean again now we're kind of starting to see where the stereotype came from we're getting more and more of these sort of Hey, these aren't great songs that are in the charts, the American charts for mid-63. Yeah. 
and speaking of which, at number 41, I Love You, Don't Forget It by Perry Como. We're not going to talk much about Perry Como, but here he is in the charts. If you're not following the charts like we do, who would have guessed? Perry Como, you know, was a huge star in his day. I mean, and for many, many years, he's still a presence at this point. And as we talked about at the beginning of the show, pop crooners like Perry Como, Tony Bennett, they still have a presence on the chart. And Henry Mancini co-wrote this song. And so this sound is still there, the song. It's just kind of a slice of the past here. It's just interesting to think how... In the not-too-distant future, the makeup of the charts would really change. I love you and don't you forget it. I love you and don't you forget it. I love you and don't you forget it, baby. All right, at number 47, A Hoot Nanny by the Glen Coves. A group that came out of New York. They were very influenced by the Kingston Trio, which I don't think comes as a surprise. They definitely sound that way. And they wrote this song. We talked about Hootenanny as a musical style at the top of the show. And here's a song using that to sell itself. Exactly. It's capitalizing on, I hate to say the craze. I mean, it wasn't exactly just a fad. The craze or whatever you want to call it was getting together, singing and having a hootenanny. That's what it is and about audience participation and that kind of thing. And we're going to see this until the spring of 64. There are going to be numerous songs that have hootenanny in the title. And in fact, in just a little bit, we're going to see another one. There's going to be a big hootenanny, hootenanny, everybody's going to come along. All join in at the hootenanny, hootenanny, sing a hoot-hollering song. Let's jump to it right now. We'll go out of order a little bit because here's two crazes. You know, we talked about how the Dakotas song would adopt the surf in the title. At number 97 by Al Casey, is surfing hootenanny. <laughs> I know. Ooh, that's two of them uh, ticked off there. Surfing and an hootenanny. Why not? <laughs> I love that, that they decide, hey, let's just get two trends in one song. This is how big it was at this point. And I would say there's more surf in this song than hootenanny. <laughs> If I can offer an opinion here, I mean, it definitely has a bit more surf guitar in here, but they mention Hootenanny in the song. So that's how big this was at the time. Yeah, it was by Al Casey, who had a group called the Al Casey Combo. There was a whole album called the Surfin' Hootenanny album that this came from. (laughs) Believe it or not, and it was him mimicking the styles of Dick Dale, The Ventures, Dwayne Eddy. But Hal Blaine of course, from The Wrecking Crew, and Leon Russell played on the album. So pick that up alongside the uh, 30-song version of The Leather Boys, and you'll have a great time. (laughs) That's right. Hey, Martin, they're all bangers. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Private joke there. Moving back into numerical order here, at number 70, I Wonder by Brenda Lee. 
It's a song that should have gotten more recognition, I think. It's really uh, just a, a beautiful performance, beautiful song. As I said, she could sing the alphabet. She could make it sound great. But again, this is another example, as we've talked about, this is the Nashville sound. This is a typical Nashville sound, and it's a cover of an R&B song from 1944, which was by Cecil Gant, and it was more of a kind of an R&B, a little more blues kind of song, and it was just him and the piano, just himself accompanied by piano, and then uh, hers, obviously, is a bit more country. So it's interesting to listen to both of them to hear the differences, but she just did a great, great version of it. I wonder Yes, I wonder, little baby Will you think of me again today? At number 75, Donka Shane by Wayne Newton and the Newton Brothers. Nowadays, it's almost a joke. This song has kind of become the sort of song that anybody's going to play in a piano bar. Belongs to the repertoire of, you know, Bill Murray's piano player from Saturday Night Live. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yeah, that's true. But it was a big hit back in the day. And Bert Kempfert composed the melody and first recorded it as an instrumental in 1959, and later in 1962 under the title Candlelight Cafe, Kurt Schwabach, our German listeners, I apologize for mangling that, I'm sure, wrote the German lyrics. And then, of course, 1963, Wayne Newton recorded it, the American version with New English lyrics. And it was originally intended for Bobby Darren, believe it or not. But after seeing Wayne Newton perform it, the Copacabana, Darren said, you know, no, I think Wayne Newton does this a lot better. And members of the Wrecking Crew were on the recording. Leon Russell, Hal Blaine, Carol Kay, Glenn Campbell. So, you know, as I said, you nailed it, Ed, that this tends to be parodied and everything today, but it was a big hit back in the day. All right, number 77, another one from the Four Seasons, Marlena. I think it is underrated. It's a better song than it is remembered as being. It's another one which strongly features the voice of Frankie Valley. I love this song. I actually like it better than Candy Girl. I love it. Really catchy. Really stays with you. I agree. Underrated. It's not forgotten, but it's just kind of not in the 
first or even necessarily the second tier of songs you think of when you think of Frankie Valley and the Four Seasons. I believe it's in Jersey Boys, but it's kind of buried in there. Yeah, and you don't really hear it on satellite. I can't recall hearing this very much. And great song. Number 83, another Jackie Wilson tune, Shake, Shake, Shake. Yeah, and I love Jackie Wilson, but this one isn't a particular standout for me. You know, it's a good dance song, gets you out on the dance floor, but it's not one of his better ones, I think. It has a little Latin flair to it, and as we've talked about, the Latin sound was big at this point, so it does capitalize on that a bit. But other than that, it does what it's supposed to do, which is, you know, gets people on the floor, but not one of his best. Okay, and then closing out the charts for the week of the 13th, number 99, Guilty by Jim Reeves. I must confess I've never been untrue And all I'm guilty of is loving you is a fascinating story. All right. So everybody sit back again. (laughs) This is a country singer who tragically died in a plane crash in 1964, but he became big in the UK and South Africa, bigger than in the US. Really, really fascinating. He, in some ways, had records that were just as big as the Beatles in the UK. So he had hits in the US, but then in the 60s, in the early 60s, he recorded in South Africa several albums in the Afrikaans language and even starred in a South African film and released an album there that played at the little used 16 and two-thirds RPM speed. Now, overall, the 16 RPM discs were around during the 1950s and 60s, and because of their slow speed, could fit about 20 minutes of audio per side, which is pretty impressive considering they're only seven inches. So why did they die? Well, basically, they were kind of a novelty to begin with. They had poor sound, and outside of radio stations, not many people bought them. Also, once eight-track tapes and cassettes showed up, up, they were pretty much doomed. For music, and the only other artists known to have released albums in South Africa on that format were Elvis and Slim Whitman. So he became famous in South Africa for that. Then he toured in Britain and Ireland during 1963 and had numerous hits in Ireland and even recorded some Irish songs. And during the 1960s, at the early stage of his career, Elton John performed in various pubs in England and frequently played 
songs by Reeves. That's how well known he was. Played Jim Reeves. He'll have to go. I played. Put you, put your sweet lips a little closer to the song, and let's pretend that we're together all along. Tell a man to turn the jukebox way down low, and you can tell your friend there with you you have to go. There was an article, or it's a reprint rather, of an article that appeared in a British magazine shortly before Jim Reeves died. That appears on Jim Reeves' site. And it said, maybe the Beatles were dominating the bestseller charts in England and the U.S., but out in South Africa, they couldn't quite make the top. Because someone else was there and wouldn't budge, Jim Reeves. Jim's Don't Let Me Cross Over was number one, and the Beatles couldn't get past number three with their I Want to Hold Your Hand. Wow. And in England, particularly, Jim has emerged as a formidable challenge to the Beatles. In manner, he is quite different from the brash, outspoken foursome. (laughs) But in talent, he is very much their equal. Jim's newest release, I Love You Because, has been on the British charts for weeks in the enviable top 10 position, and this writing is just one notch below the Beatles' Can't Buy Me Love. We'll be seeing more of Jim Reeves very soon. We certainly will. So it just shows you. I mean, he was a big deal. I mean, bigger in, in the UK in some ways. So this is his appearance on the US charts. This is Guilty by Jim Reeves. Again, very Nashville sound kind of, you know, with the strings. Sounds pop more than country. But who knew he was such a big deal in South Africa and Britain? When I was a kid, I got to visit, like, people and friends and family. And, I mean, it's nasty, really. I should really ask first. But my first thing I used to do (laughs) is go straight to their record collections and rifle through what they've got. Because back in the day, that's how you base whether somebody's a good person or whether they're not. You base it on the record collection. You bet. And it's amazing how many people had, not just one, but a whole slew of Jim Reeves albums in their collection. It was incredible. And I just thought I'd get that point across that, yeah, he was a big thing in the UK. While not a big thing here, I remember seeing those commercials growing up. recordings and biggest hits are in this two record collection the legendary jim reeves i guess i'm all jim's classics i'm just on the blue side of lonesome welcome to my world there'll never be a voice so pure and personal Call toll-free 1-800-692-4000 to save all COD and handling charges and pay only $12.98 for two albums, two cassettes, or two eight-tracks. Send check or money order to Jim Reeves, Box 95426, Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. Remember to save all additional charges. Send only $12.98 to Jim Reeves, Box 95426, Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. Between all the KTEL advertising, there was always like the Jim Reeves commercial. Oh, wow. Again, that would have been mid-70s. Yeah. Okay, so we move on to the next week, the week of July 20th, 1963. Number 90, good old Darling Love with Wait Till My Baby Gets Home. What oh, a voice. What a what voice. A voice. Yeah, you know, that's all there is to say. Although this is a good song. You've been calling on me every day, ever since my body. 
all-time favorite of hers but wow just that voice is just so distinctive and it's classic phil specter production as soon as you hear it you're like phil specter at number 94 dance 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 by joey d i want you baby i say i want you just to dance with me come on and dance 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 so let's see we've had dance 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 we've had shake 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 and we've had go 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 in this show wow 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 no no there's no song by that title but uh, <laughs> hey the beatles would do it with long 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 wouldn't they oh there you go so now we know where they got it but Paul would only do a hey hey. Yeah, that's right. Joey D might have been part of the backing band for Tony Sheridan. That is claimed on one release of the uh, Tony Sheridan tapes, the early tapes of the Beatles. Yep, and uh, and they performed the Starlighters. Joey D and the Starlighters performed one night in Stockholm with the Beatles as their opening act. Everybody who was there on those tours in '63 claims that the Beatles were their opening act. Exactly, which is, you know. It's kind of true, but not necessarily. And we're going to have one more of them here. Yes, (laughs) exactly. This is a fun dance song. I mean, it's not something you'd really sit and listen to at length. Number 96, an artist that I actually had never heard of before before looking it up for this show. It Hurts to be 16 by Andrea Carroll. Another thing that you see as we go through these charts, Everyone would always try and play off a hit by coming up with an answer record. Yep, and this one was an answer to Neil Sedaka's Happy Birthday Sweet 16 and features uncredited backing vocals by the Chiffons. And sounds a little bit like Shout to me. It was kind of... A little bit. Yeah, yeah. I can see that. It was either just written to be quickly disposed of or it was like, oh, we got this. We don't have any lyrics to it. Let's use it there. Yeah. You know, it kind of has nothing to do with what's being sung. The kids are singing records were very popular and i suppose because hey you've already got some recognition factor there i mean you can play off of that and already have subject matter to work from so that's a good start with the composition process you really don't see that anymore that's another kind of trend the beatles just sort of swept away yeah that's true again you'll look at what was charting here it's kind of the same old same old that was charting here i mean particularly we're talking about oh okay this was a hit let's do another one of these oh this was a hit let's write an answer record i mean 
you know, you think to the future, the only one that I can even sort of kind of think of, at least until we get to hip hop and the battles between them, Nina Simone did an answer to revolution. And it's like, okay, well, that was an answer record, but even that wasn't really an answer. Right. Yeah. That's kind of a different category. Written by Neil Sedaka's future brother-in-law as well. Eddie Grossman at this point, he's calling himself Ronnie Grossman for this. He called credited as. But he'd write various songs for, for Neil Sadaka. So Neil got angry. It's like, how dare you write an answer record? And then they became friends, right? That's right. At number 97, This Is All I Ask by Tony Bennett. As I approach the prime of my life, I find I have the time of my life. Learning to enjoy at my leisure All the simple pleasures And so I happily concede That this is all I ask This is all I This is gorgeous. I really love this. And this was one of Tony's favorites, too. Uh, He performed, he continued to sing this for many years throughout his career, uh, recorded it live. And he actually gave a performance of this, one of his final concerts in 2021 at Radio City Music Hall when he performed with Lady Gaga. It was one of his final shows. And it's a beautiful, beautiful song. You know, the way he sings it, it's just classic Tony Bennett. He thinks about every word he sings. It's like he's telling you a story. And to me, this is what singing is. They don't, they don't make, make them, them like, like that anymore. anymore. <laughs> exactly. There it's are true. certainly artists who are in that domain, but they don't come anywhere near him. I've seen a little bit of this clip. I don't watch American Idol. This was the like the old American Idol on Fox. And I think he was like a mentor or something one week. And he, you know, he was mentoring one of the competitors. I think they were singing the Great American Songbook, you know, songs that week. And she started singing and, and she, he suddenly was like, wait, whoa, 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 stop, stop, stop. And he said, think about what you're singing. Do you know what you're saying? You know, he said, I want you to do that over. But he said, think about the words. Think about what you're singing. Don't just sing them. Think about them. This is a perfect example of his style and thinking about the words. You know, this is all I ask. This performance is just the quintessential Tony. Do you want to Beatles connection? Yeah. It was written by Gordon Jenkins, who was the arranger for A Little Touch of Smilshin in the Night by Harry Nilsson, which was produced by the Beatles press agent, Derek Taylor. And there's your Beatles connection well right there. All right. Number 99, I Want to Stay Here by Stephen Eady. I don't want to go to the party with you. I don't want to go to the dance. I don't want to go anywhere with you. I just want to stay here and love you. We talked about last time how Steve Lawrence and Edie Gourmet would take Goffin and King songs, and here's another one. I would say this is not one of their more memorable compositions, but this again shows the presence 
of traditional pop. Well, these are traditional pop singers, but of course this is Goffin and King writing for them. But the sound would be endangered. Goffin and King were maybe a little less comfortable writing in. This sort of style. Yeah, yep, I think you're right. Doesn't sound like their typical kind of writing. All right, and then at number 100, What a Fool I've Been by Carla Thomas, the Queen of Memphis Soul. Indeed, and would would later be the Queen of Stacks. And this was written by Steve Cropper and William Bell. And William Bell, of course, would go on to be one of the architects of the uh, Philadelphia Sound. And Steve Cropper would be a member of the house band at Stacks, Booker T and the MGs. I need him so. The song itself is not that memorable, but Carla Thomas was a powerful singer and the daughter of Rufus Thomas, who we've talked about before on this show. Yeah, yep. it is indeed. Yeah. All right. So we move on to last week in July of 1963, July the 27th, number 76, If I Had a Hammer by Trini Lopez. Now, now before we get into this, he obviously influenced Paul McCartney because, well, Freedom is a ripoff of If I Had a Hammer, if I've ever heard one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, kind of. Yeah, I never thought of it that way. completely but i am so not fond of freedom it's like i like if i had a hammer but the the similarity is just kind of what puts it over the top it's like paul did you have to do that (laughs) i was actually going to say let's not go but you've actually gone right so the so so moving past that trini lopez was one of the co-headliners when the beatles were in paris in january of 1964 and while trini himself does not make an appearance Paul has several photos of the band in his new book. He has a picture of the drummer, I believe. And I forget, was there were there other members of the band in there? I forget. Uh, there were a couple 
other members of the band. The, the drummer was Mickey Jones, who would play with a lot of people. Houston-born. No, we have to note that. You get Chicago shout-outs right. all the time. Yeah, exactly. So, so we got to get a shout-out to Houston. Uh, he would play for Bob Dylan and Johnny Rivers in the first edition. And then he would go on to become an actor. And, and you, there's actually a lot of places you might recognize him from in the acting world. Look him up. Wow. Mickey Jones. Back to Trini Lopez. Yep. So it was interesting. He did an interview for uh, classicbands.com, Trini Lopez, and he talked about the Beatles opening for him for almost a month in Paris. Very interesting interview. He said, I used to steal the show from them every night. The French newspapers would say, bravo, Trini Lopez. Who are the Beatles? He said, can you believe that? They didn't have much of an act. They used to just stand there and shake their heads with the hair. The girls love that hair. We were there in January 64 for a whole month. In fact, when we finished doing the shows, the last night we were there, reporters came to my dressing room. They said, Mr. Lopez, the Beatles are leaving tomorrow for New York. Do you think they'll be a hit? I said, I don't think so. And his dressing room was next to theirs. He said, I whispered because I didn't want them to hear me. They said, why not? I said, because in America, there's a group I like much better than these guys called the Beach Boys. And I really liked them much better. Little did I know. I said, unbelievable, but it was a great experience being with them. That's one of the things about the photos that Paul has. While they were definitively co-headliners, you look at the posters, you look at how they were billed at the Olympia, the Beatles and Trini Lopez, same size, same level. Right. Sylvia Vartan was underneath. She is that cute little blonde you see in a lot of those pictures of the Beatles in Paris from that January 64, Yeah. if you're wondering who she is. And we do get a lot of really nice photos of her on stage and the dancers behind her and all the rest of them. Right. But yeah, Trini Lopez, his biggest hit with uh, If I Had a Hammer, and it was a protest song written by Pete Seeger and Lee Hayes, and it was first recorded by Pete Seeger's group, The Weavers, the folk music quartet, and, and it was highly influential folk group. And this was also a hit for Peter, Paul, and Mary, like a year before Trini Lopez recorded it. And Trini Lopez was also kind of a major figure in what became known as the Chicano rock movement. I talked about this in one of my Roots of Rock and Roll classes. And it is a good cover. Love the percussion on it. I can see why it became a hit. It's a very well done cover and 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 it's original it's not a copy of any other version that's what i was just gonna say really put his own twist on it before we leave the song the royal variety command performance late in 63 ross mcmanus the dad of elvis costello declan mcmanus performs this song in more or less the trini lopez version he does boy is he put his all into it (laughs) he really does you can look it up on youtube the the beatles were clearly familiar with the version before they even ran across trini lopez Mm -hmm. indeed all right number 82 the dreamer by neil sadaka foolish little dreamer why can't you see she's a fickle schemer she'll take your heart thinking it's a joke and break it apart when it's broken into. Neil Sadaka, part of the Burl Building crew, and wow, this song was really annoying. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Neil Sadaka fans, he's written some great stuff. <laughs> Laughter in the Rain, but wow, that hushabye hook really didn't work for me. That got on my nerves. Hush, 
The Ha Ha from, from our previous episode, the song that featured the Ha Ha hook. Yeah, this one with Hushabye, no. No, no, no. And I can't let Neil Sadaka go by without mentioning Love Will Keep Us Together. Yes. Captain Neil. That's a good song. That was really the first time I ever noticed Neil Sadaka. When I was knee-high to a grasshopper, as they say. Yes. <laughs> He's written some great stuff, no doubt about it. But this is not one of them. <laughs> True. Okay, at number 89, Sam Cooke. Another just really, really great vocal performance. Frankie and Johnny. I agree. I love this cover. Frankie and Johnny were sweethearts At least that's the way the story goes Frankie bought everything for Johnny From his sports car to his ivory clothes Oh, he was a man, all right Oh, but he was doing a wrong Talk about making something your own. This is, of course, a... An old song. I mean, its roots go back to at least the 20s, you know, maybe even earlier. And only Sam Cooke could turn a song like this into the swinging, soulful version, complete with horns and a funky bass. And I just, I love how he tells this story in his own way. I agree. And he's another one that could sing the phone book and make it sound great. But I, I just love how he puts his own swagger into this. And I think this song may have been one of the ones that would influence Paul in his storytelling songwriting. And it's even, you know, ever so slightly reminiscent of the story behind Rocky Raccoon. The guy and the girl, and there's something going on, and he pulls out a gun and shoots him, and the guy dies, you know? Yeah, that's an interesting thought. I hadn't thought about that. But yeah, definitely, we all know Paul loves the storytelling songs, and this is sort of the ultimate in storytelling songs. That's true. All right, number 90... Chinese Checkers by Booker T and the MGs. It's a fun song. It's very well executed. You know, the playing is great on it. It's not really overly memorable. Yeah, it's not Green Onion, that's for sure. Booker T and the MGs, they were the house band at Stacks for good reason. I mean, just the, the keyboard solo, the guitar riff, the horns, and I love when they all, your move. That's fun. Is Chinese Checkers still a game that kids play? I haven't seen it, and for that matter, every other game seems to have been turned into some sort of digital or iPhone version. I'll have to go and check and see if there is a version of Chinese Checkers for the... You can still buy physical versions. This is Chinese Checkers. It's actually called Sternhalma, and it's not related to China or Checkers. It was invented in Germany in 1892. The name Chinese Checkers actually first appeared in America in 1928. It was a marketing campaign spearheaded by a Bill and Jack Pressman. They had originally called the game Hop Ching Checkers. You know, maybe it's something to do with the marbles and kids don't to do with marbles anymore. And These darn kids today. Ah. All right. Number 95. Another one of those no-hit Supreme songs yes. written by Smokey Robinson, a breathtaking guy, which we have to mention because 
I love the long version of the title. The song was written as a breathtaking, first sight, soul-shaking, one night, love-making. There you go. Love-making. Yep. Yep. Next day, heartbreaking guy. <laughs> yeah, I don't know why they didn't leave that as the title. It rolls off the tongue. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, this is a very interesting song, not only because of that, but all three Supremes members get separate vocal parts on this. This is one of the rare singles where you see that. And after this, really only Diana Ross gets any solo vocals. See, I mean, there may have been a song or two where Mary Wilson got a lead vocal, but not much. I mean, this one, you get all three. So, you know, really fascinating. And this is also the last song that Smokey uh, Robinson would write for them until 1969. But after this, Holland Dozier Holland would take over for them because... As you said, Ed, they were the no-hit Supremes, and the label just didn't know what to do. I, I don't know if they were about to give up on them, all, but then Holland Dozier Holland offered them baby love in 64, and then that turned everything around. But, yep, they were still in the no-hit Supremes era, and this breathtaking guy didn't do much better for them. Well, I think that's the reason why all three of them are singing. They may have been looking for who do we want to be putting out front of these three girls. Yeah. Exactly, that could have been. One night you held me tight And whispered in my ear All night sweet words I never heard And I believed every word Not too long now before they'd finally uh, turn around and uh, get their hit. And then the Marvelettes would do a cover of this in 1972. Yes. All right. (laughs) Kit and I have had some discussion on this one. It wouldn't go very high in the charts, but its appearance here at all leads me to say just simply WTF. (laughs) The song is Saturday Sunshine by Burt Bacharach. It is just dreadful. And and it's a Burt Bacharach song. Maybe there's a good song underneath there, but in the song itself, maybe okay, but in arrangement and then in the vocal, they brought in a prepubescent child, likely a female, although there is a rumor that this is Jay North of Dennis the Menace fame. I saw that rumor. Somebody commented on on YouTube. I couldn't find any evidence either way. Burt Bacharach and Hell David co-wrote it. This is credited just to Burt Bacharach and his orchestra and chorus. Okay, now we love Burt Bacharach here. All right, so yeah, I mean, yeah, we we said so many good things about Burt Bacharach and Hal David. Exactly, we love them. You know, we really do. So before we get the hate mail, (laughs) you know, we just want to say that this is by far the strangest recording I've ever heard. From him. I mean, why have a kid singing lead? The arrangement, as you said, that is is just just strange and over the top. I mean, it's boring on parody. Yeah, it really is. I don't know what they were thinking. I even listened to because I read that Petula Clark covered this 
a few years later. So I thought, okay, maybe the problem is the child singing lead, that it's just so jarring. You know, maybe if I hear an adult sing it, it'll be better. Not really. <laughs> it's, it's only slightly better, huh? It's only slightly better. Definitely not having a child sing lead helps. But I don't know. Martin, what, what's your take on this? I've been dying to know. I thought exactly the same thing. I just listened to it and just thought, it's a rarity where it's a Baccarat song where I'd quite happily yeah. skip it. I mean, it's, yeah. it's a head scratcher. And this was early Burt Baccarat, uh, certainly recording on his own, but that's no excuse. Was the name enough to get it on the charts? Again, it did not move higher than number 93. So, okay, but... For me to you couldn't get on the charts, and here's this thing. <laughs> yeah. And let me tell you, I played this for my father, who is a huge Burt Bacharach fan. I mean, huge. And I played this for him earlier today. He had never heard of this. He had never heard it. And even he looked appalled. <laughs> <laughs> so... And he's a big fan. I'm just glad that I haven't got it on vinyl because I'd hurt my arm every time I'd have to move the, the needle to the next song. Oh. All right. At number 99, These Foolish Things. This song was ahead of James Brown and the Famous Flames with These Foolish Things, which, while it's not a great record, this is very much James Brown developing into himself. You yes. know, particularly at the end of the record, he's going into the James Brown that we're going to know in the decade to come. Absolutely. gets into a yes. jam at the end, doesn't he? Absolutely. I think that's a good way to put it, Ed. You know, he's, he's trying to find his voice, his image. You know. And it's an interesting version of this. It's obviously very R&B influenced, you know, but I, I wonder if he was trying to show maybe his crossover potential that he could, in addition to singing R&B stuff, that he could cover. I, I think a lot of artists did this. Well, even the Beatles. I mean, look at how, you know, on what did they sing on Ed Sullivan in 64? Till There Was You. I mean, you know, they try to say, hey, we can sing the standards just as much as rock and in, in James Brown's case, R&B. And, you know, so it may have been his attempt to do that. Uh, but I think maybe too, maybe you're right that it was also, you know, just sort of trying to find where his niche was going to be. It's James Brown. You, you can't help but smile when you hear... Yeah, it's, it's not a great record, but it's a good one. Yeah, exactly. I don't know if it's just me, but I can see a through line from this where eventually, like you said, it's got that attempt at being that, you know, laid back, that, like R&B, which I think that would eventually lead to, you know, what would eventually be an incredible classic with, you know, it's a man's world and, and that. I can see almost like a through line from this 
to eventually get into that stage and it's almost like he's mm. yeah trying well, i mean to that's kind of what i said was yeah. that, you know this is the yeah. early stage this is the equivalent of maybe the star club you know the beatles star club tapes is this is him going through i mean except he already has a record deal but still yeah yep exactly yep this is james brown uh early budding james brown <laughs> exactly and then we close out the month of July 1963 with Tony Bennett and True Blue Lou. Not one of his best, but it's it's a kind of a nice little pop song. Down in the pool room, some of the gang were talking of gals they knew. Women are all the same, said Joe. Then one dizzy bird said, pal, ain't you heard the story of True Blue Lou? Listen and get an evil It was originally from uh, 1929 musical film, The Dance of Life which in itself was an adaptation of a Broadway play called Burlesque. And Troubadour became a standard song for Ethel Waters. And uh, she sang it throughout her career. And so then Tony Bennett put his spin on it. And I agree, it's not one of my favorites of Tony's, but he does a terrific job on it. But it's not all I ask, that's for sure. But it's a nice record. Fabulous vocal on it. So, all right, you know, that is July of 1963. Uh, Nothing new from the Beatles, although that's coming next month. (laughs) Next month is really on the British side. The Beatles thing has been growing and growing. The Mersey Beat thing has been growing and growing. But next month is when it's all going to break through. America is still in the folk, pop, country, but with some soul and R&B mixed in there. But the change will be coming in uh, just a short time. Absolutely. Thank you, everybody. We will be back next month with that information. See you next time. Take care. There was a piece in the NME, a news piece, that said the Top Rank Records, remember when Top Rank had a record label? They introduced an LP series next week that will be called Toppermos. And it's coinciding with their current advertising slogan, Toppermost of the Poppermost. Yes, I thought, they got it from somewhere. They saw that. They must have seen that in either the NME or Record Mirror or Disc, Record and Show Mirror, as it was then. And they've taken it from there. They've obviously thought, how stupid that is. How stupid is is one of those phrases that someone, an older person who doesn't understand teenagers, comes up with a slogan that they think is going to be the hip slogan of the month. Toppermost of the poppermost.